Hello, this is Anthony Day with an extra edition of the Sustainable Futures Report. It's Wednesday the 20th of May. The Guardian recently published a letter from an international group of scientists. I want to share it with you and I've asked one of the signatories to help us understand the message. The letter goes like this. Last month, The Guardian quoted Fatih Birol, Executive Director of the International Energy Agency, saying, if we put post-pandemic bailout money in the wrong place, we will lock ourselves in a dirtier energy system, making it much more difficult to reach our climate targets. We beg to differ. It is game over for preventing dangerous climate change, now that governments are planning the cheapest and quickest return to consumption. Riding on the wave of cheap oil and fossil fuel bailouts is incompatible with keeping the average global temperature rise below 2 degrees centigrade, let alone 1.5. Even if the world agreed to maintain all the pandemic-enforced restrictions on travel and consumption, the emissions saved would amount to almost nothing compared with what's needed to achieve the Paris Agreement's climate targets. Yet, whether it's to discourage mass fatalism or prevent the very worst of what the future threatens, those of us with this knowledge still cling to, yes, we can. In this story, it is always five to midnight. It is always the last chance to prevent disaster. In contrast, collective action on climate can only grow out of complete honesty. It is time to acknowledge our collective failure to respond to climate change, identify its consequences and accept the massive personal, local, national and global adaptation that awaits us all. The letter was sent by Dr Wolfgang Knorr of the Department of Physical Geography and Ecosystem Science at Lund University and co-signed by another 11 academic colleagues from California to Marseille and from Edinburgh to Exeter. Does it really mean what I think it means? Is the outlook so terrible? I've been able to catch up with one of the signatories, Dr James Dyke of the Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter. He also writes a column for the I newspaper. James, uh, welcome and thank you very much for talking to the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you for having me. Now that Guardian letter, the thing that leapt out at me was the phrase, it's game over for preventing dangerous climate change. And then at the end it says, it's time to acknowledge our collective failure to respond to climate change. Now, I think a lot of people would agree that we've been failing to respond for years. But where do we go from here? Uh, Well, that's a very good question, isn't it? I suppose the letter was motivated, well, at least it was motivated uh, in my part, to try to get us beyond the idea that, yes, we can, we just need to work a bit harder, we just need to wish a little bit more, we need to make one last collective heave and and we're going to get there. And I think we need to acknowledge now, at least when it comes to limiting warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius pre-industrial periods, that we have failed to do that. In order for us to have been able to have a good chance of doing that, we would have had to have taken much more strident and effective action about 10 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, and we didn't for various reasons that we don't need to rehash. So we've lost that. 
The best case scenario that then people hope is that we will overshoot the budget for 1.5 and we'll also overshoot the budget for two degrees Celsius. But then through a range of negative emissions approaches or technologies, we'll somehow get warming back to within two, two degrees or maybe even 1.5. And this, I think, now needs to be the focus of our discussion because there are really, really important assumptions baked into that. And if we're wrong, wrong about those assumptions, then things could go quite badly off the rails by the middle and the end of this century. Right. These negative emissions technologies, um, this is this is global climate engineering, isn't it? It's things like uh, putting stuff into the atmosphere to dim the sun. It's, th uh, it's things like seeding the oceans with chemicals to uh, make it absorb more CO2. And they're all completely unproven and, um, well, they're high risk, aren't they? Or, or is that not what you're talking about? Well, there's two types of approach that you've just talked about there. The first one is what we call negative emissions uh, technologies, or um, sometimes they might come under the banner of even natural climate solutions. And that is a big bundle, a, a big kind of collection of approaches and technologies which will somehow remove carbon from the Earth's atmosphere. The low-tech and arguably the most popular one is planting trees. As we plant trees, as they grow, they sequester carbon in their tissues. And then depending on what you do with a tree, um, if you keep that tree along around, if you keep the tree around long enough, then you can lock that carbon up long enough and therefore you've reduced the amount of carbon in the Earth's atmosphere. So that's but, one. That, that is though fraught with difficulties, isn't it? Everybody thinks, ah, oh, right, I'll fly to New York and I plant a tree and end off, I've solved it. And, and there are so many diff difficulties. Uh, one is you can emit the carbon in half a day. Uh, a tree will take 20 years to absorb it. Uh, and we haven't got 20 years. And yes. is there enough land for the trees? These are some of the problems uh, behind proposals that essentially argue that we should be planting trillions of trees. And if we do that, then it's pretty much, we, you know, we've done the job. Well, we haven't, right? So there's lots of problems with, planting trillions of trees but they are sometimes proposed as the you know the more agreeable end of these kind of negative emissions technology approaches because you know there are there are a well-established technology trees have been around for hundreds of millions of years um yeah. people like trees there's lots of good things to do with trees there's lots of good reasons why we might want to reforest areas you know aforestry uh, or afforestation is is generally a good thing because it can reintroduce natural habitats you know so there's lots of ways that can be a good thing when you get up to the scale of tree planting required in order to have a significant impact on atmospheric carbon and uh, concentrations then you're talking about you know the vast deployment at an industrial scale mm. of trees many of which would not be suited to those particular kind of locations it's going to have all sorts of other uh, potentially very negative impacts so in and of itself, planting trees can't be a, a, the sufficient solution to climate. But then people argue, well, then there are other things that we can do. Mm -hmm. We can uh, take carbon directly out of the Earth's atmosphere. We can you know, suck it out of the Earth's atmosphere, compress it, and then, and then store it underground. And those two ideas come together in something called BECS. Now, most people have never heard of BECS which is something of a scandal because the only way that we're ever going to limit warming to no more than two degrees Celsius is with the significant deployment of BECS because BECS is bioenergy carbon capture, uh, sequestration and storage, let's say. And the idea here is that 
At the moment, we burn coal to generate electricity, and that burning of coal produces carbon dioxide. Well, rather than burn coal, we'll burn trees. So already we're seeing power stations, uh, most famously the Drax power station, yeah. which is being converted from being able to burn coal to now burning biomass, which is basically trees. So what we'll do, we'll grow the trees, we'll cut them down, we'll burn those trees in a power station, and then the exhaust gases, which have got the carbon dioxide um, in, we'll put scrubbers at the top of the chimneys, which will suck out that carbon dioxide, we'll compress the carbon dioxide, we'll pipe it to a disused oil or gas field, and then we'll pump it down into the deep into the earth's crust where it will stay for thousands of years. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to be devil's advocate again, but um, first of all, the technology has not yet been implemented, even at Drax, in, uh, at a commercial scale. Uh, it will take energy to actually scrub the CO2 out and certainly take a lot of energy to compress it and pump it down that pipeline into the North Sea and the, and the caverns underneath. Um, and people are turning around and saying, and of course, that'll knock the actually overall efficiency of the plant back to where it was in the 1920s. So, okay, well, if we can live with that and the, and the higher prices, the key question is how soon are we going to actually have that technology in place? Yeah, so the assumption is we'll have it in place when we need it. We need it now, don't we? Well, no, we don't. In terms of a policy context, we don't need it now because I suppose this is also another important part of the letter for me is that things like BECs, things like negative emissions technologies, they allow policymakers to say that they're taking effective action on the climate because they can say we are reducing emissions at a sufficient rate that by the time we get to the middle of this century, we'll have much lower emissions. And then with these things like BECs and tree planting and maybe even direct air capture of carbon dioxide, we'll be able to have negative emissions. So we're trying to get to net zero. So the bigger the amount of carbon that you can, you would expect or hope to take out of the atmosphere at some point in the future means you don't have to take such strident efforts to decarbonize now. Yeah, so but they, that's a hostage to fortune because you can never be sure that you are going to be able to take that much out in the future. And, and you've got no incentive to surely to do anything about it because by the time you get to the future, those people in control now will not be in control. They'll be retired, won't they? They'll be retired and it'll be our... Uh, a problem for our kids and our grandkids yeah. to solve. And I think the assumption is that if they don't solve it, they're going to be locked into potentially very rapid warming beyond three, four, even five degrees Celsius. So they'll have to figure it out, mm. right? Because if they don't figure it out, they're facing climate breakdown. So by definition, I mean, isn't this a bit like the, the, the COVID crisis where it's argued that the British government left it too late? To, to take the actions. Surely the same must apply to this. If we do it early and quickly, we can uh, uh, contain the problem and, and get it uh, under control. But if we just sit around and leave it to future generations, well, they're, they're, mm, they're going to have an awful task to, to meet, aren't they? Well, the, the analogy with COVID-19 is a good one because the arguments against early and effective lockdowns of our societies were predominantly economic it's mm. too expensive to do that and that we would harm the economy much much more than the economy would be harmed by having let's say a longer process of the pandemic um allowing us to undertake you know herd immunity you're not allowed to talk about herd immunity anymore but that's still the main policy of the united kingdom 
government and many other governments, it's not to contain and suppress the pandemic. It's to essentially try to manage the pandemic in such a way that you don't overwhelm the NHS, that you don't, you don't uh, produce too much harm on the economy. Well, exactly the same uh, reasoning applies when it comes to action on the climate. We could, if we wanted to, undertake rapid decarbonisation now. We've been able to do that for decades. The argument is always that if we decarbonise too fast, we will harm the economy. So if you look at timescales over 10, 20, 50, or maybe even 100 years, the optimal thing, the best thing for the economy, is to undertake decarbonisation at a modest amount, at the same time spin up these negative emissions approaches, so that by the time we need them around the middle of this century, they won't be too expensive, the technologies will be sufficiently mature, such that we can deploy them at scale, and therefore avoid doing harm on the economy by undertaking too rapid climate mitigation in the early parts of this century. So that's, so I'd argue that the, the reasoning is essentially the same. It's being motivated by an approach which tries to produce the least harm on national governments and then writ large on global climate change, the, the global economy. Okay, but then if you compare the way that countries have dealt with COVID-19, this country arguably delayed the lockdown and we have around 40,000 deaths. Uh, Places like New Zealand and Australia uh, locked down very quickly Mm. and Australia has around 100 deaths. New Zealand has less than 100 deaths. And so therefore they uh, nipped it in the bud, if you like. They, They got the problem early and stopped it becoming a big problem. Every day that Drax and all the other power stations uh, operate, they add to the sum of CO2 in the atmosphere. And there is a finite limit, as many people say, to the amount of CO2 we can put in the atmosphere, which is implied in the Guardian letter, because uh, we will not achieve the Paris Agreement levels if we don't stop it. But, and you're saying we don't need to stop it now, but surely, surely we do. No, I think we, we absolutely do have to stop it. Based the argument given by um, well, pretty much everyone who signed up to the idea of limiting warming to no more than two degrees is that we don't have to undertake radical emissions reductions now. The assumption is that we'll just deploy BECs, right? Um, so all pretty much all governments are signed up to this idea that we don't have to undertake really rapid emissions reductions now because BECs and other negative emissions approaches are going to allow us to get to net zero. So the UK target is net zero by 2050. It's not not produce any carbon by 2050, but it's every every tonne of carbon that we produce by the middle of this century, we're going to have to take out of the atmosphere somehow, right? Through a whole spectrum of technology, but most important of them being this BEX, bioenergy carbon capture and sequestration. Well, Um, no, uh, yes, that actually doesn't take anything out of the atmosphere. That stops it going into the atmosphere. There is a difference, isn't there? I mean... Well, okay, they call it, it's negative emissions in the context that if you plant sufficient trees, which absorb the carbon, and then you burn them, so the trees grow, they absorb the carbon, you burn them, and you make electricity, and then if you capture the carbon, then over timescales of 10, 20, or 30 years, that whole system works out as 
neg negative emissions actually reduces atmospheric concentrations of carbon. No, surely it, it stops it increasing. It doesn't doesn't actually reduce it. It, it. it takes back what has been emitted. The trees will take back what has been emitted, and you can leave on one side the emissions from actually building the plant and operating it and harvesting and all that sort of thing. So it'll take it back, but it doesn't actually reduce it. I mean, if you have carbon uh, dioxide harvesting systems, which some people have developed, that will physically take it out of the atmosphere and that will reduce what's in the atmosphere. And we're going to need some of that if we are actually going to be able to offset the inevitable uh, emissions, which will come from, from some sort of uses which, which we can't avoid. I mean, th this is a really important point because it will only reduce the amount of concentrations in the atmosphere if you plant new trees, right? So at the moment, what they're doing with Drax is they're actually clear-cutting established forests. So they're just taking... So that's carbon neutral. They're just burning trees, which previously um, grew in some um, natural ecosystems, let's say. Um, so you're basically just releasing carbon that was previously absorbed. The idea of Bex is that the total number of trees on Earth will significantly increase. So if we plant a trillion trees, let's say, if those new trillion trees, which over the next 10, 20 years, will absorb a certain amount of carbon. So that carbon is being sequestered by trees that otherwise wouldn't have existed. So what we need to see for Bex to work is a significant increase in the total amount of tree coverage on Earth. So when you're looking for, well, how much land is that? We most really need to look about the entire surface area of India covered with trees. And we need to find that new land space all over the Earth and then do nothing else but grow trees continuously for about 100 years. And if you do that, then over 20, 10 to, 10 to 30 year timescales, you can see the system is not just net, um, net um, zero, but actually negative. But there's a lot of assumptions also in there because, well, there are a lot of assumptions in there, some of which you've already covered. Yes, okay. So when you say Bex uh, and you're talking about carbon storage and sequestration, are you talking about storage and sequestration in new trees or in other systems as well in parallel? Okay, yeah. So one way to look at it is as the tree grows, it stores the carbon, but only temporarily. Right? What we then do, we chop it down and then when we burn it and that produces carbon dioxide waste gases, mm. then that gets scrubbed out and captured from the chimney then that gas gets compressed and then put down underground oh, where it's okay. going to have to stay for thousands of years. Right, so that actually will reduce it. Yes, okay, I'm with you. Right. Yeah. And of course, once it's there, if that was to bubble out or there'd be some kind of you know, geological process which would release that carbon dioxide, then you would be obviously straight back to where you were previously. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And in fact, it may be even worse. So there are, there, so there are risks associated with that because you would have areas in the Earth's crust where you are storing maybe many, many years worth of carbon dioxide. And if that was to be suddenly released, then the climate forcing would be much, much larger than the progressive yeah. emissions over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Right, well, I have to say that you're being much more positive than I expected from this headline, Game Over. Um, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of uh, the work of people like uh, Jem Bendel at the University mm -hmm. of Cumbria um, and Guy McPherson in, in the States. 
And they, I would say, well, I call them catastrophists because they seem to have accepted the fact that we're approaching the end. Guy McPherson's phrase is um, near-term human extinction. Um, mm -hmm. I hope you're more optimistic than that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a very, obviously, and unsurprisingly, it's a controversial idea that the, there is an, an imminent and unavoidable collapse of human civilization, and that there is even a significant risk that Homo sapiens could become extinct mm -hmm. within, I don't know, decades or maybe centuries. Well, he's saying within 10 <laughs> years, or even 18 months. <laughs> but that was yeah. five years ago. So, so um, I've done my best to look at the evidence for that, and I don't think the evidence is in, right? You have to, in order for that to happen, you have to assume worst case scenarios in, in pretty much all cases, in all different systems, all at the same time, perhaps. Um, there are no, I mean, in, there are certainly no models by which we could see that happening. There's no, there's no theory by which we would say, because this interaction with that, that's going to collapse, which is going to lead on to this. Um, but that's okay because we don't have a complete understanding of the complex earth system and how human societies interact with it and actually are part of it. Um, but even, you know, when I've done my best to take that sober assessment of the evidence, just on the basis of the assessment of the climate science, I don't think it's there. I don't think you can make that very firm conclusion, which some people do, that we are facing unavoidable collapse because there are unavoidable tipping points, for example. I mean, the, where tipping elements are in the climate system is being continually evaluated and there is massive uncertainty, right? I mean, I mean, one thing we need to remember is that we're talking about trying to limit warming to no more than two degrees Celsius, how much carbon you've got to emit. That's still only what we consider to be a roughly two in three chance of limiting warming. I mean, this is fundamentally probabilistic, you know, because we, there are so many uncertainties. So even if we did do everything that we need to reduce emissions to no more than two degrees, there's still a one in three chance that would warm beyond two degrees. Mm. Maybe even, and currently we're on track to warm beyond three degrees, mm. right? Mm. So then there's a significant chance that even if we think we'd limit it to three degrees, we would still warm beyond four or even five. So, you know, we have to be mindful of there is significant uncertainty. Now, I think in that space of uncertainty, some people kind of conclude, uh, or assume a worst case scenario. They say, well, we're, it's impossible for us to do this. I can't see how that's going to happen. We don't really understand the interactions between this. It's, it's possible that these things could go, it could go much, much worse than we, than we think or we'd certainly hope for. That, obviously, you can do that. But I'm, I'm interested in, you know, what evidence is there that, that would allow you to conclude that within, let's say, five or ten years, there will be a collapse of civilization. I mean, my own assumptions are, the working hypothesis is that civilization is actually maybe an awful lot more resilient than we think it is but that's not necessarily a good thing because what civilization will do in order to maintain itself is further destroy much of the biosphere and maybe even further impoverish a significant fraction of humanity so we might see civilization not collapsing you know in a 50 or 100 years we would still see continual technological progression let's say but the quality of life of people and the quality and the state of the biosphere and, and the quality of life of other species in the biosphere may be something which is which we could consider to be awful, like terrible. You know, something horrible has happened, but civilization is still persisting. Okay. Okay. 
yes, it's an irony uh, that it's the developing nations which appear to be uh, most vulnerable to the geographic effects of climate change. And we can, we can deny it if we want to. Well, we do. We do deny an awful lot of things that happen in far off countries of which we know little. And yeah, we'll probably preserve our um, way of life, but uh, at the cost of uh, people far away. But what do you think we now should do? What's the call to action? Because I didn't find much of a call to action in, in this Guardian letter because, uh, you know, it says it's time to acknowledge our collective failure. But yeah, OK, we'll acknowledge it. But what do we do about it? Yeah. So the, the letter wasn't intended at all to talk about climate solutions. I think because in some instances we might be we might be too quick to grab at these solutions because we're trying to fix the wrong problem, right? So if you've got the wrong solution to the wrong problem, then obviously you're not gonna, you're not gonna fix the problem. So just to go back to the idea of negative emissions, everyone is scrabbling around at the idea that the solution to climate change is to basically take carbon out of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, and why is that? Because the assumption is we can't decarbonize. Well, why is that? Because the assumption is we can't undertake too much damage to the economy. Well, then why is that? Because that's all about assumptions of how the economy is meant to work. Well, how is the economy meant to work? What is it for? What, what you know, yeah, where, yeah. What, are the, what are the benefits of the goods and services that an economy produces? And so, I mean, to go back to uh, what the COVID-19 crisis is showing us, it's giving us an opportunity to reflect upon, well, what is an economy for? Because at the moment, we've got millions of people essentially being paid by the government to not go to work. They're being paid not to go to work in order to reduce the rates of transmission. But then that makes you think about, well, what once the pandemic is over, what should these people be doing anyway? What is the role of government in the functioning of the economy? Why? It, it now seems commonplace or it seems a, a common assumption that people shouldn't go hungry, that mm -hmm. people should have enough food to cover the rent, uh, enough money to cover the rent, enough money to get their food and the, you know, the, the things that they need in order to have a, a good quality of life. If that's really what the economy is for, then that opens up the opportunity to have a quite interesting and important discussion about how are the goods and services redistributed essentially around, around both the national economy and the global economy. Because vulnerability to climate change is strongly affected by essentially how much money you've got, whether you're a rich person in a rich country or a poor person in a poorer country. If we are really motivated to reduce vulnerabilities to climate change, then we would do an awful lot more to ensure that those most vulnerable to it had the resources or the facilities to be able to, you know, not insulate themselves, but to reduce the impacts of climate change. And we do that at the same time as reducing our own impacts on the climate, which is basically, you know, burn fewer fossil fuels. So those much, much deeper systemic kind of discussions, whenever you try to, whenever I tried to raise them in the past, it's like, you know, we don't have time for that, right? You know, no one's going to listen to that. You know, who, you know, the way in which the economy is absolutely embedded in, you know, you can't begin to imagine doing things differently. Well, the last five months have shown us that we need to do things really, really differently yeah. if we actually care about the well-being of people. And if we can do it now, and we care about the well-being of people in 10, 20, 50 years' time, certainly our kids and our grandchildren, then we need to do exactly the same kind of deep reflection about the impacts and the issues that they are going to experience and suffer because of our emissions now. So in that respect, there is an opportunity to do something now, which means we're actually going to get to the heart of the problem. 
But if we keep assuming that at some point in the future, technology is going to fix the problem, technology is going to save us, I think all it allows us to do is continue to delude mm. ourselves mm. that we're on top of the problem when we're not. We've failed. We've, we've done it really badly wrong, right? Yeah. But there is still time for us to avoid the worst of those damages, the worst of the impacts. There is still time for us to be able to you know, limit the harm that, that is going to be coming down the line over the next few uh, decades. Right. So has the time come for the Green New Deal and a universal basic income? I think these are very, very promising particular policy initiatives. I mean, the Green New Deal covers a wide range of things. Um, the idea of build back better. Yeah. You know, we've powered off a large section of our globalised, industrialised civilization. It would be monstrous just for us to turn it all back on again once the pandemic is lifted. You know, we're discovering that we can live different lives, that those lives can be good, that we can discover other ways in which to you know, have decent, fulfilling um, ways in which we can flourish as individuals, as maybe societies. You know, it's a brutally hard lesson to have learned over the last five months. We need to rapidly apply that to how we then move forward from the pandemic at the same time as reducing our environmental impacts. The idea that there is some unavoidable trade-off between economic growth and, and, uh, and action on the climate has always been false. It's, it's never been true. Right? We have always had the capability to, to undertake the massive re-engineering of our societies and the complete overhaul of our infrastructure. That's obviously that's going to produce jobs and produce an enormous economic stimulus, open up entirely new areas of industry, new ways for us to prosper. The reason we haven't done it is because there are tremendously powerful vested interests that have everything to lose from that. Right? So it's much about prizing their hands off our societies as it is about enabling new areas for it to flourish. Right. James, uh, I'm reluctant to cut you off, but um, I think we could go on talking for a very long time. Um, what would you like to say in conclusion? In conclusion, I would like to say that the letter sounds very negative. Mm -hmm. It doesn't offer much hope, but I think it, it represents an absolutely crucial starting point for us to be able to produce these new ideas, narratives and strategies where we will be able to get hope. We have to stop deluding ourselves. We have to stop assuming that technology will fix all of humanity's problems, including the problems that technology creates. We have a small, still, but small window of opportunity to undertake the deep reflection that we need in order to make the right actions both on the climate and on our economies, and therefore put in place the things that are going to be required for a much more stable, and just climate and economy for the foreseeable future. James, thank you very much for that. Uh, that was great. And I shall continue to read your columns in the I newspaper and uh, recommend it to the listeners of the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you very much. I was talking to Dr. James Dyke of the Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter. What do you think? Do you agree? Disagree? Think we should have a totally different approach? Let me have your thoughts and ideas. Send them as an audio clip if you like, but please no more than two minutes. And the address as always is mail at anthony-day.com. This is an extra episode of the Sustainable Futures Report because so much is going on at the moment. There will be another episode as usual on Friday, day after tomorrow, 
and that one will be about another form of clean energy. I'm planning to issue another additional episode early next week, because there are so many stories piling up, but I haven't had an opportunity to share them with you. Then on the following Friday, the 29th of May, there will be yet another interview. This time it's about conflict resolution, which I think is important in the face of so many people denying the importance of the climate emergency. After that, I have no specific plans, but I'm confident there will be more sustainability and climate change news to share with you. Send me your ideas if you like. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that the Sustainable Futures Report comes to you without advertising, subsidy or sponsorship. The advantage of that, of course, is total independence. I do get support from my patrons, and I'd like to take the opportunity to thank them for their contributions, which help me cover the costs of hosting this podcast and getting the transcripts prepared. If you'd like to be a patron, you can start from as little as a dollar a month, and there are full details of what you get in return at all the W's, patron.com slash SFR, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash SFR. I'm thinking of revising and upgrading the patron levels, and I hope I'll be able to involve you more in setting the objectives for the content of the podcast. There is a new website on the way as well, but that's another story. I'm Anthony Day. That was a special edition of the Sustainable Futures Report, and there'll be another one on Friday. Thank you.